Financial planning and security can sometimes be seen as a moving target. The rules change constantly, and you need guidance to stay ahead of the market moves. This is the Labenthal Report with Michael Hartzman and Dominic Tavella, with additional insight from industry veteran Jordan Kimmel. We'll break down the news, trends, and overall direction of the markets, telling you what may be coming next, investment opportunities, and what to avoid. Now, here are your hosts, Dominic Tavella and Michael Hartzman. And good evening, everyone. I am Michael Hartzman. Today is Tuesday, May 11th, 2021. And as usual, I'm on with my partner, Dominic Tavella. How are you, Dominic? Good evening, uh, Mike. How are you? I'm all right. So we're going to start the show the same way we started last week's show. So if anyone's listening to these back-to-back, this is not a repeat. But Jesus, the S&P, the uh, NASDAQ started out terribly this morning, just like last Tuesday. Looked like it was going to be a really ugly day in the pre-market. And then all day long, you know, the NASDAQ really fought back beautifully. And it turned out to be a bit of a nothing burger. You know, the NASDAQ closed flat. Now, granted, yesterday the NASDAQ, you know, had a good pasting. So there's that. But um, wow, today was quite a roller coaster. You know, we, we're forced to look at these things on a day-to-day basis, hour by hour, Mike. And, you know, we always talk about the roller coaster ride, and today certainly was one. It was a roller coaster ride. But the NASDAQ is about 4% off its high, and we've been warning clients now for about two to three weeks. It's not unreasonable to see a little bit of a pullback here. And uh, if we're prepared for it, then then it, we could be to our advantage. But uh, you know, where the NASDAQ left off, the Dow and the S&P took a step back today. So, you know, it's not unusual middle of May to see a little volatility here. Right. As our guest last week, you know, talked about selling May and go away. And, and he didn't mean that literally. And, and we certainly don't mean that literally. But, um, you know, the market is definitely going through some gyrations. I was actually on a uh, webinar uh, this afternoon and with a pretty prominent portfolio manager. And she gave some context to what's been happening recently. You know, a lot of a lot of worries is about inflation, but at the same token, because the economy is reopening and because a lot of things were shut down so long, there's just a lot of pressure right now on the supply chain, whether it's lumber or semiconductors or copper. And, you know, you almost feel a little better when there's a pullback when you could attach logic to it. Um, so if, you, if, if there's one singular item, there's a few, but one singular item that I think the market's starting to focus on is just that, Mike, it's inflation. And you know it, it was kind of predicted and it shouldn't really be a surprise. And the Fed's talking about that, we're gonna have it, but it'll be sort of isolated within a relatively short period of time. But I think every single one of us, and especially portfolio managers, are going, hey, wait a minute, this, this may not be an isolated event. We're seeing the prices of lumber and steel and oil because of the, of the pipeline event. Um, we're seeing geopolitical events, uh, labor now being shortage in a lot of places. And there's starting to be a fear that this inflation scare may not be necessarily a one-time event, may not necessarily be a short-time event. And that might be the actual trigger that, you know, really initiates a pullback 
uh, in these markets. It could be. It could be. And the counter argument to that is the supply chain fear should be short-lived, maybe a quarter, right? Let these factories get up and running and maybe it takes them three months to get to get the product into, into the high demand that we have. But the other factors, the other long-term inflation factors are definitely out there. there. There's no doubt about that. And literally, Mike, that's what the Fed is hoping for, right? Is right. factories open up and there'll be more lumber available. As the steel factories open up, there'll be more lumber, uh, steel products available. But these companies are finding it a hard time to attract the labor that's necessary to open the factories up uh, full-fledged, right? We, I, I saw a, a company, which will be obvious, but uh, that makes chicken parts, that cuts up chicken parts, and they can't get enough chickens to be to the slaughterhouses to be processed to supply the restaurants, right? So therefore, the price of chicken has gone through the roof. So um, it, it, it really is a challenge. I think it's in the, in the short run, hopefully short run, it's going to be a challenge, but certainly the fear that it might go on a little bit longer. Well, that's a new one. I heard about lumber and copper and semiconductors. Don't stress me chicken out by wings, telling me like there's a shortage of chickens. Chicken wings, especially. Listen, I'm an expert on that. But, uh, um, it, is, it is the truth. And, and processing plants, amongst many other areas, car production, we've talked about in, in past uh, discussions, right? There, there seems to be a shortage just about everywhere. And it makes sense that as the factories open, that would lessen, but not if you can't find the workers or get the workers to come back to work, then we have a real big problem on our hands. And the labor report we got on Friday was pretty ugly. Yeah, I was going to touch on that. Maybe we'll touch on that on, that on the close, uh, or maybe our next guest could touch on that. So um, our guest this evening is Dr. Leila Heckman from DCM Advisors. And we've asked her to really touch on the global outlook, which we always kind of dance around, but we never really did a deeper dive. So we've asked Dr. Heckman to do that this evening and um, looking forward to her comments. I as well. So we will be right back with Dr. Layla Heckman from DCM Advisors. Financial planning and security can sometimes be seen as a moving target. The rules change constantly and you need guidance to stay ahead of the market moves. This is the Labenthal Report. All right, I'm Michael Hartzman, back with Dominic Tavella. And tonight we have a special guest, Dr. Layla Heckman from DCM Advisors. And Dr. Heckman, right before the break, I indicated that um, um, you're going to talk, hopefully, about the global scene. Um, but before we do that, I guess you have to, uh, well, first of all, welcome. Sorry about that. Thank you. And um, let's talk about you know where you see the global environment. And I guess you have to talk about the domestic environment first. So um, why don't you just tell us kind of what you're thinking right now in terms of uh, your global outlook? Sure. You know, I've been looking at the uh, global markets now for close to 30 years. And when I started, Japan was 60% of the global marketplace. Uh, today, it's the U.S. that's 60% of the global market. So I'm going to start off with the U.S., give you okay. some thoughts about the U.S., about um, uh, the positives and negatives that I see in the market, and then we'll move on to some sectors, and then we'll talk about um, going outside the U.S., which everybody should have a piece of the portfolio outside the U.S. Right. Um, 
certainly on the positive side of the U.S. market is that as the as the U.S. recovers from the um, COVID recession, um, U.S. GDP growth forecasts are being upgraded. Right now, we have a forecast of 6.6% for GDP for 2021. Um, and that's even lower than some other Wall Street firms, some firm, you know, some prominent firm um, uh, has a forecast of 6.9% for GDP growth for, um, for this year. Six months ago, there was a GDP growth for the US of 3.8%. So it's definitely been upgraded uh, the U.S. growth uh, rate. Earnings this, uh, this year is forecast to be uh, around 21%. Last year, earnings declined by 15%. So these are definitely some positives. And also, we know that our interest rates are low. They're about uh, short-term interest rates are approximately a half percent. Um, and uh, the Fed has maintained that we'll not raise interest rates until they see inflation uh, for a while above their target of 2% and also low uh, as the employment comes down, uh, uh, unemployment comes down. Uh, so what are the negatives? And then, you know, what I'm saying about the US can be probably uh, said about a lot of other markets around the world. Um, you know, as, as the growth rates um, for the economy recover, it's exactly what you, were, what, uh, you and Dominic were talking about is that there's the pressure on uh, inflation. And uh, just to give a story about lumber, is a friend uh, are building a, a, a room on their house in the Berkshires, a new bedroom suite. And last year was estimated to be $150,000 to do that. Uh, this is pre just before the pandemic hit. Uh, right now, the estimate is $300,000 to wow. put on this additional room. And the, and the contractor is saying it's because of the price of lumber. And that is the definition of inflation right there. That is inflation, right. Wow. Uh, um, so that, that's one sort of negative, the possibility of, uh, you know, real you know, inflation sustained. And we don't know if this is sort of, as you say, short term or it's going to be longer term. Um, it's a late, and, and also... Uh, Kramer was talking uh, yesterday on his show about um, he owns a restaurant in Brooklyn and how he can't get help to work in his restaurant. Oh, it's, it's, yeah, so no, that's the question of inflation. The, that's a where negative. all the employees go, right? I mean, everyone says the same thing. They can't find people. They can't work. find people. So is that short term or long term? Or is it once people get off the, the, uh, the supplemental unemployment, you know, will people go back to work? Is, right. You know, as people as the kids go back to school, will people go back into the job market? Uh, I, uh, you know, it remains to be seen. The other negative that can be said about the, the, the market, and it's true of the U.S. and as well as outside the U.S., is that things aren't cheap. Mm-hmm. The uh, trailing PE of the U.S. as measured by MSCI, they have an index that's similar to the S&P, the trailing PE is 35 times for the U.S. Now, that's, of course, based on last year's earnings, which were uh, down 15%. Uh, forecasted PE for the U.S. is now at 23. That's for 2021, forecasted PE. Uh, it's 10-year average of forecast PE is around 16 times. So the, the, you know, we're not talking super cheap. And we all know where uh, the, the sectors that are not cheap are. And, you know, 
technology, communication services, consumer discretionary. Um, uh, they, uh, you know, those are, are not cheap sectors. So the question is, is it similar to the tech bubble of 90, 1999, 2000? Um, and I would say that um, there are some some similarities, but I don't think it's overwhelming. I remember being in a cab in 1999, coming back from JFK, and the cab driver's telling me what tech stocks he was buying, what he sold, how much money he was making, what Chinese tech stocks he was buying. There was somebody in my house fixing the refrigerator last week, and he was telling me exactly that, what tech stocks he was buying, and you know, and sort of you know, all of a sudden I remember 1999. But I think there are, it's not you know, exactly similar. I mean, I think that 99, remember the IPOs and, and there, were, there weren't earnings. Now the tech companies do have earnings and it's not, um, uh, and they were not, uh, most of the tech companies are proven as opposed to unproven that happened in 99. So I don't, not sure how far we can, um, you know, make that analogy. And also valuations are not nearly as stretched as they were in the tech bubble. Um, now, this, this brings, however, the question that people should have a um, portfolio that not only includes the U.S., but also includes um, uh, non-U.S. stocks uh, and be, should be diversified. Um, in terms of, of sec sectors, value versus growth, and this is true not only for the U.S., but also outside the U.S., obviously growth has had a pretty good run. Since August, value has sort of been sort of running, whether you're talking about the U.S. or outside the U.S. Um, uh, we have come up with some indicators that help this help tilt towards value versus growth in the U.S. and non-U.S. as well. These, some of these indicators are um, next year's GDP growth forecasts, Citi's economic surprise, City Group's economic surprise indicator earnings growth forecasts uh, for this year, three months change in the purchasing managers index or the PMI, uh, and whether value or growth has been, um, had better momentum in the last six months. These were some of the indicators we look at to whether tilt towards value or growth. Um, if the indicators are somewhat higher than their long-term uh, long um, average, it tends to be better for value. If they're below their long-term average, it tends to be better for growth. So what are these indicators saying today? And this is not only true for the US, but also outside the US. Next year's GDP forecasts, which is one of the indicators we look at, whether it tilt towards value or growth, is at 4%. And its long-term average is 2.6. So somewhat above its long-term average, next year's uh, GDP growth forecast. So I would say that that's pretty positive, you know, somewhat positive for value. Hmm. So these economic surprises that tend to be positive for value. Citi's uh, economic surprise index is 28. Its current reading, its average is three. So that's also positive for value. Three month change in the purchasing managers index. Its current reading is seven. It's for 7% 7 higher than three months ago. Its average around 1%. That's modestly positive for value. In August, it was a much more difference. The three-month PMI was up like 32% over a three-month period. Right now, it's only 7%. So some of the value could have run already. And 
outperformance of value versus growth over the last six months. Yes, value has outperformed growth over the last six months. So that's also positive for value in terms of moment, positive momentum. Um, so we're, we're modestly tilted towards value, but of course you do not want to um, neglect the, the, the growth stocks in your portfolio. They, you You're know, tilted towards value. That's the future. That, that, you know, those are the future of, um, of, of, the, of the globe are really the, the growth companies. Layla, we're, we're, we're gonna run short on time. So I just wanna make sure we focus on international. Sure, sure. Um, we're looking at the picture today and obviously the US markets have done year to date have done exceedingly well as some of the international markets. But it's clear that in terms of vaccinations and how much uh, distribution has been on a global scale, especially Europe, that they're behind us, right? So. I think in terms of economic uh, activity and how much they still have to go, I think there's more opportunity there uh, than there is left in the U.S. Uh, and we're looking to increase our exposure on the international fronts in our portfolio. Right, because it, look, you know, if you look at how markets have done over, you know, over if you look at 20 years, the the last. 10 years or so, the U.S. has done extremely well relative to other markets around the world. Well, that doesn't, you know, in the real world, that doesn't continue forever. And I think it's, you know, I think you're right. I think there is a big opportunity of investing um, outside the U.S. Now, the, the question is, is of, what about cheapness? What about valuation? And some, you know, the the average for Europe, the average forecast of PE is 18 times. The U.S. is 23 times. So it's somewhat cheaper than the U.S., but it also tends to always be cheaper than the U.S., a lot of the markets outside the U.S. So it's, um, uh, you know, part of the issue with the U.S., it has a lot of tech companies, which tend to be highly valued. So when you look outside the U.S., the markets tend to be cheaper than the U.S., but there is, they are more attractive on evaluation than, than the U.S. market, uh, continental Europe, for instance. Um, also, Europe is 40% of the non-U.S. Uh, capitalization, so you have to have a piece in, in Europe. The, the only issue with, with Europe, and I think that that's what you've just talked about a little bit, is that they are behind the curve uh, in terms of vaccinations from the U, uh, than the US. It's a little slower rollout. They will be rolling it out, but it is a little slower. And the GDP forecasts are not being upgraded quite so quickly as they are in the US. So that's uh, a little bit of a, um, a negative, but it's also an opportunity because you know, when they do pick up, when the, their PMI indexes increase the way ours are, it's a big, it will be an opportunity for- um, Layla, so wouldn't you, wouldn't you think that's like buying into the US markets maybe three to six months ago? Yeah, I think you're right. I think there is that opportunity because they are behind us in terms of their recovery, their economic so, recovery. Saddam, so, so I was just going to say, I was just going to ask the same exact thing in a different way. Because I was going to say, does that mean that at the moment internationally, you prefer growth over value as opposed to domestically, you prefer value over growth? Well, you know, this is my, my take on things. I'm, I am slightly tilting towards value because of the fact that value outside the U.S. has had the same issues as value in the U.S., so, so they really over the last ten years, they've you know value has lagged growth. 
So internationally, you you favor value as well. Slightly, yes. I but I, you don't want to rule out growth. You have because wherever you are around the world. Those are that's the future of you know the way uh, you know the future of industry is going. Uh, but there's a little bit more um, as as economies recover. That, that economic surprise tends to be better for value. And Layla, and one of our better calls early in the year was to overweight dividend paying stocks. Um, and we're thinking the same strategy might work in Europe uh, and overseas in general. Any opinions on that? Yeah, no, I think that's a good, you know, it, it gets, you know, dividend paying stocks tend to be more value oriented, more value stocks. And also the dividends tend to be bigger. Yeah, they seem to make okay. more of their distribution. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, three, four percent you're going to get from non-US, whereas US is one point five at this point dividend yield. You know, Australia is another market we tend to like because of commodity. You know, what we call terms of trade. Their their export prices versus their import prices have been trending upward, and I wouldn't forget uh, good old Japan. We you know we have basically a market weight in Japan. 15% of the non-US capitalization, and we would have a market weight. It's it's not relative cheap relative to its history, but GDP forecasts have stabilized there. And it also tends to have a lo somewhat lower correlation with the rest of the, with the rest of the developed markets. So I wouldn't forget Japan. Now I wanted to get to emerging markets. Um, we are overweighting emerging markets. And I want to say that we are not overweighting every emerging market, but as an asset class, we're overweighting it. And, um, and it, it does come from the caveat, there's positives and negatives. I mean, I guess, guess that's the nature of the investment world. The impositives include, you know, reasonable valuations, in some cases, stabilized growth expectations, especially in Asia some of the risk spreads have been narrowing. Remember those, you know, sovereign risk spreads? Mm -hmm. when, when things blow up in emerging markets, they tend to balloon, you know, bubble out and now they're sort of decline, narrowing. And they've also had relatively good price momentum. So we do have an overweight in emerging markets as an asset class, some of the, but we're not every market. Some of the markets that we do like are for instance, in Asia, we like Taiwan, which, which tends to be more of a growthy story, uh, but it's favorable on risk and growth as well as momentum. So we're tending to continuing to like Taiwan. It's done extremely well. In um, emerging Europe, Middle, Middle East, Africa, South Africa is a market we like because of that terms of trade, you know, uh, export prices relative to import prices um, and also has re uh, reasonable valuations. Um, we also like Latin America with the caveat that um, there's definitely a risk there because of COVID, especially in Brazil. So we'd like a Chile where terms of trade is, uh, looks good. GDP forecasts have been upgraded. Um, Brazil, we like with that caveat, the currency is extremely undervalued, cheap valuations, positive terms of trade, but good old COVID is... Is, and political risk is always there. And Mexico is another market we like. So we tend to uh, overweight Latin America. We have a few likes in uh, Middle East, uh, uh, Eastern Europe, Africa, and then in Asia, especially Taiwan. 
So I hope that's helpful that people should keep a diversified portfolio, have piece of it outside of the US. It tends to be cheaper than the US. As you see, it's, it's uh, especially the Europe is picking up um, probably behind the US because of the rollout of the vaccines. Um, and I hope you find this helpful relative to your um, equity positioning. We, we, we do find it helpful. Thank you. And I just have one question. You know, you mentioned Brazil and you mentioned the geopolitical risk. Do, how much of a factor do you, do you, what weight do you give geopolitical risk when you look at any of yeah. these emerging countries? Yeah, yeah. And it's true. I mean, that's why, I, you know, you wouldn't invest in only one emerging market. That's for sure. Because any of them can blow up. So it's like, uh, so um, we, we have a couple factors that bring into account geopolitical risk. And one of them is sovereign spreads. When these markets tend to have a lot of political risk, you'll find like Turkey, when Erdogan, you know, it removes its, uh, you know, uh, central banker, you see the sovereign spreads really spread out. And that's the same in Brazil or Argentina or any emerging markets. That's, that's sort of one of the factors. Um, you also see it in um, changes to GDP growth. We look at not only the absolute level of GDP, but also are they being revised upwards or downwards? The same with earnings growth. Are they being revised upwards or downwards? So it comes out, we don't have a political risk factor, but it certainly comes out in some of the, some of the things that we look at. And Layla, only because we're, we're literally running out of time. If we did get higher interest rates here in the States, that would probably strengthen the dollar. What, what would your opinion then be of emerging markets? Well, often when, you know, if there's a lot of dollar denominated debt, that can be a little bit uh, hard on emerging markets. Um, but uh, I've seen the emerging markets go up and down, uh, whether the dollar is strengthening or weakening. Um, but historically, because of the, uh, a lot of dollar denominated debt, it, it was a little bit more tied to the, to the dollar. And now there's, um, you know, local currency debt that's not quite so tied to the dollar. Um, so, and I think currencies are very hard to predict. That would be my conclusion. Thank you. Dr. Heck, Dom, you have any other mm -hmm. thoughts or questions? Um, I think we're getting close to our cutoff. So I think I'm gonna say thank you so much. I appreciate your time and uh, would love to have you back where we can expand on some of these subjects. Oh, great. It's my Dr. pleasure. Dr. Heckman, thank you very much. You're welcome. And we'll be right back right after this break. Financial planning and security can sometimes be seen as a moving target. The rules change constantly, and you need guidance to stay ahead of the market moves. This is the Labenthal Report with Michael Hartzman and Dominic Tavella. Now, back to the Labenthal Report. And welcome back to the Labenthal Report. I'm Jordan Kimmel, Chief Equity Strategist and Portfolio Manager. And it's a delight to bring on not only a colleague, but a friend. It's Herb Blank, the Chief Quantitative Strategist over at Value Engine. Herb, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Jordan. Well, it's going to be fun. We have a few minutes to really, really, you know, peel back the onion a little bit. But let me share with the audience, I met you, sounds crazy, last century. 
And uh, I do believe, Herb, I just have to throw this out. I don't want to exaggerate. I believe you've run the first ETF ever, maybe. Uh, and I consider you really the nucleus of the whole ETF movement, uh, which has probably picked up more billions and trillions than you even imagined when we first met. I, I had pretty high expectations, as you'll recall. And uh, what I loved is the structure of it, which is more efficient than the traditional mutual fund structure, not only from taxes, but for the manager in every way and uh, saves money for the investor in every way. Right. Well, you know, I run SMAs, which are equity based. Dominic Tavella is going to come on in a few minutes. He's running the bulk of really the, the assets and he uses ETFs a lot. And I know you want to talk about some specific tilts you're using right now. We're going to get to it. But I want you to spend just an extra minute, um, if you will, why ETFs are actually beginning to really replace, if you know, mutual funds and why they're so beneficial. The devils, as always, are in the details, Jordan. <laughs> but the in general, ETFs that actually use the 40-act fund structure, which is the great preponderance of them, there are exceptions like GLD we can talk about on another broadcast, but the uh, equity and fixed income ETFs that use the traditional 40-act uh, structure have many uh, advantages over them. They do not have to manage to daily cash flows. They uh, have a, a better way of uh, redeeming and uh, basically insulating the manager from those daily cash flows through their creation and redemption mechanism. Not to get too technical about it, but at the end of the day, the after-tax, the, 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 the returns before taxes are better. The after-tax and after-fee returns are much better than on a traditional mutual fund. And uh, there's no cash drag with an ETF, whereas a uh, mutual fund has to keep cash on hand for daily redemptions. Right. And, and, you know, we enter a market right now where we're bringing in a lot of new accounts that are filled with some tech companies that have huge profits built up in them. When those things are sold in mutual funds, a newcomer pays those taxes. Uh, and, and, you know, as a wealth manager, uh, Labenthal is really concerned not only about returns, but the after tax returns. I really appreciate you, you know, you're hitting on that. So, you know, our last guest, talked about you know what factors they're looking at and and again um there's two things that you're doing i think that are really interesting one which is the etf really as the pioneer i know you've gotten very involved with the esg movement uh and have been in you know you so you know facts and you know magnet my my two real strategies for actually 20 years and when i founded um facts Right now, we're, we're moving towards an area where growth is dominated for 10 years, and, and you could feel a shift if you're a portfolio manager. So all of our clients are different. We're not going to make recommendations for you know, specifics because every client is different, but I know you have a strong feeling on a movement towards value. So why don't you kind of share what you're seeing and why you're seeing and, and, and what you'd kind of recommend people be thinking about? Yes, I'll be specific. I am not necessarily saying we're tilted towards value here, but here's the uh, overall evidence. For 94 four years, since 1926, since these things have been measured, value had, had outperformed growth. And there, but there have been very, various cycles of dominance. 
No cycle has been as, as long as the 13-year cycle since the financial crisis put this all together in 2008 and, and went on to where we are today. Now, there are various reasons that I would use the whole time allotted to give uh, behind that. So I won't do that. Right. Basically, so we had, uh, we've had various regimes. We've had the strongest uh, growth regime we've ever had. The last five and a half, almost six months now, it's, it's turned the other way. It's been a very strong value regime. And through all the quantitative methods I look, it would make sense. It would be consistent for the cycle to have, have longer to run. Given that you may believe that the cycle has longer to run, I took a look at three of the largest uh, index value ETFs. And there are also some active e uh, value ETFs out there that can be looked at, and maybe we'll discuss those on another broadcast. But the three index ETFs uh, that, that I looked at is VOOV, the largest one, which is the uh, Vanguard uh, large cap value ETF. Then we have the... Uh, uh, iShares core US value ETF. And there's a slight but uh, uh, difference I'll get to on that in a minute. Uh, that's IUSV. And the third one was FVAL, a fidelity uh, value ETF that focuses, tries to isolate and focus more in a more concentrated way on the value factor. Hmm. When you say concentrated, meaning in terms of names or factors? Uh, in the ways of names and, and focusing on uh, that va the, the four elements, they look at a value factor. And again, uh, we, we publish a blog in Value Engine. I would refer you there if you want to get into the specifics of the ratios in there. Okay, well, let me even, while you mentioned that, let me actually stop. And, and while I never uh, advertise for anybody, we are paying for your service. We find a lot of value in it. Uh, and I consider you, Herb, uh, and your partner, Paul, one of, you know, one of the smartest guys on the street. And the fact is you looking over our shoulder and looking at the portfolio is a huge benefit. But why don't you mention even like before you get into the details of the ETFs, because, you know, why don't you kind of talk about maybe even value engine itself and, and the various services and what you guys do. And, and I know you guys, I'm not sure right now, but had... Uh, among peer groups, a number one ranking year to date for a while. Uh, still do. It's available on InvestStars. They rate independent research uh, services and they look at both the fundamental and the quantitative. We're in the fully quantitative group and we're number one among the 16 they, they, they uh, list, five, uh, four notches above Zach's investment research. Well, Herb, I like to keep good company, you know, and, and, you know, the fact is we have a call set up. We'll look at our portfolio. I love the analysis that you give, but you know what? Um, sometimes we get into the woods. We forget how, how, how much we're in the woods back up a little bit, if you will, on this factor piece that you've just generalized on. And, and the fact is that there are major factors um, our previous guest talked about not only the sectors, but applying factor analysis into each sector. So you're not saying just value stocks, you're saying value among and within sectors. Am I right? Yes. And I've known Dr. Layla Heckman even longer than I've known you back to her Smith Barney days. And well, she's I'm a brilliant. kid, you know, I'm still a kid. 
<laughs> and yes, we were doing factor analysis long before they called them smart beta factors. Right, but of I course, the, all the ETFs now go to smart beta, beta factors. And beyond value and growth, that includes quality, it includes uh, uh, low volatility, it, it, in, uh, in, includes, um, what are the other two? Small, uh, size. Oh, yes, of course, small, small cap and they uh, size as a variable and um, well, so, so but before before Dom and Mike join in I want to touch on something I know you really feel strongly on, on the value tilt at the moment and think it could actually run for a while um, but I want to touch on something else if you don't mind I know you could could move around you know wh when I put together this thing called facts which is the most trustworthy companies it's basically quality Okay. And I just don't understand. I know that at certain points there's junk rallies and junk rallies where there's no earnings and so on. But Herb, I'm thinking that if you stick with quality long-term, how does quality actually ever go out of favor or why should it? Because a company that is quality now isn't necessarily going to be quality three or four years ago. And you just touched on it with facts, which I look at as an ESG type of permutation or way of measuring or valuing ESG, as I've done a number of studies on ESG. And at the end of the day, the part that's most proven about ESG isn't necessarily uh, what somebody's going to do in the future for the environment. It's when you go through the criteria is how advanced or non-advanced are they on the subjects that are? What, what have they done to reduce emissions? What are they doing in terms of their uh, use of human capital? What are they mm. doing in terms of the shareholders? Are they progress? In short, are the things that they're doing progressive ahead of the mainstream or are they regressive behind the mainstream? The companies that are most regressive inevitably get the lowest 20, 25, 30% of, uh, of ESG scores. Those are the companies you want to omit from your selection set just as much as you would want to omit companies that have high high bankrupt uh, bankruptcy potential z-score sure sure and, and you know herb what you mentioned what's interesting is that i don't believe it's a sound strange i don't believe in companies long term i believe that companies like players and sports come and go over cycles but that using our quantitative screens and using factor analysis, we could actually field an all-star team each year, even though the names may change, we're looking for really the same kind of things. Does that make sense? That makes some sense. Again, uh, everything comes down to the specifics involved, but yes, that makes sense. But right. again, one of the reasons ESG has finally you know, come over the mountaintops and is accepted by institutions is one thing they have to look at is because it's a risk mitigation factor. You want to eliminate the regressive companies the, the, or management quality is regressive. Management is looking at old things when everybody else has progressed beyond them. Those, you, don't, you don't want to own cross pens anymore. You don't want to own <laughs> I love America. that. So, so let, me, let me do this. I want to bring on Dom and Mike uh, Dom uses ETFs a lot. I'm in the individual stock side, but um, I think the conversation is, is a wide open one. I know the tilt to ESG is there, but but Dom and Mike, uh, Herb's an old friend. He's deep in factor analysis. He knows our models well. Fire away on Herb. I think he can handle any questions. Hey, Herb, how are you? Thanks for having me. I'm fine. How, how are you? Good. Good. 
Um, Mike, so, do you mind? I'll jump in. Go ahead. Then I have a question. Go ahead. Sure. So, Harb, you kind of already touched on it. And, you know, I started in the industry over 30 years ago and putting portfolios together with mutual funds and ETFs are, are the way to go today. But this argument, passive versus active and smart beta, I think when you're talking about ESG, I think smart factor beta ETFs is the future. I think you can't just buy a blind pool and close your eyes. And I'd love for you to expand on that idea. Certainly, if you're a professional looking to add value for your clients, uh, the only way that you can do so that makes sense these days is uh, once in a while, yeah, you can land upon a stock still, and there is a place for like maybe 10% of satellite play money in your portfolio for a few stocks. But generally speaking, you need to have your core covered, and your core can be covered either by VOO or VTI, which is the full market US ETFs, or you can sometimes put uh, so, uh, some or all of it into value or growth and still not go too much askew or one of the other factors uh, such as low volatility, momentum, uh, quality, et cetera, at that time. I would never put all of it in there. That's, that's, that, that, that's my set because I've never seen a timing model that was so good that it was 100% uh, perfect. And I like to all, you know, uh, keep a, a bunch of ballast in the full market at all times. That's the way I do things personally. But yes, if you're going to add value, you have to be able to use the ETFs, understand what's under the hood of the ETFs and, and put things together. One of the problems people have is they'll look at the name of an ETF and they'll assume that, oh, these are five value ETFs, they're all the same. And that was kind of the subject of my article. The Fidelity, uh, the FL, the Fidelity ETF has only 128 holdings and it's much more concentrated. So it did much better when, when value came into focus, but it, did, it was a laggard to the other two when value was out of favor. Similarly, the uh, VOOV, the Vanguard one has 427 and it uses the S&P 500, which means that it's only not using 73 stocks mm -hmm. in there. Now, the difference between VOOV, the value, and VOOG, the growth, is that the, the, the weights are different given which factors they represent of the three classic value and growth factors. But you're still buying, you know, th these portfolios are a lot more similar than they are different at the end of the day. The, the one twist that I liked very much with IUSV is it, uh, and they call themselves core rather than large cap because it also includes the uh, 400 of the MDY, the mid cap. So you're getting the best of the 900. So your 10 largest holdings are the same, but you get a little pep from the fact that mid cap has over time outperformed uh, large cap, at, but you, uh, it also is a little less valuing that your dividend yield is slightly less 2.1 to 2.3 because the mid caps don't tend to, to, to pay as much yield. So you got hey, Herb, I'm going to moderate in here and let, I want to let Michael in before we run out of time you, here. Cause you, I know, you know Michael's you, had something he wanted. You know what, Jordan, we have less than a minute to go. So we'll, we'll have to bring her back and I'll have to hold on to my question because we are quickly running out of time. Well, Mike, if you do that, I mean, that's like Hollywood. You're really, really holding our viewers for the next show then, huh? And I get it, all right? But Herb, we run out of time already. It's this quick. Um, I really do believe that the, the factor analysis that you use and Value Engine uses, and I really will welcome you back. I'm going to welcome the founder of Value Engine on another day. 
Um, but I always want you on my shoulder looking up my portfolio because I just know you can't teach smart. And uh, you're one of the smartest guys on the street. So thanks for joining us. Okay, one last thing. Never buy an ETF without at least uh, reading, reading the summary prospectus. Know what you're buying. Don't assume. I think That's we great advice. that her very well. So we're going to take a quick break. We're going to be Our back to wrap up the Labenthal Report right after this. Financial planning and security can sometimes be seen as a moving target. The rules change constantly, and you need guidance to stay ahead of the market moves. This is the Labenthal Report with Michael Hartzman and Dominic Tavella. We'll break down the news, trends, and overall direction of the markets. Now, back to the Labenthal Report. All right, I'm Michael Hartzman. I'm back with Dominic Tavella. So, Dom, we had two great guests, uh, Dr. Heckman, who um, talked about the global picture, and, and her, Dr. Herb Blank, who talked about ETFs, exchange-traded funds. But what I wanted to spend a little more time on was a headline from Friday um, about the jobs report and how the, how the media called it a giant miss. And what was really interesting about that is the NASDAQ went up, right? The, 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 the NASDAQ took bad news and made it good news. Why? Because they looked at that as taking some other pressure off of this inflation bugaboo that we have. So, you know, Friday's job miss was another example of um, bad news being good news for the upside business that we're in. So the giant miss, and I think people should understand the context, uh, they were expecting about a million new jobs. A million, jobs, yeah, right? a million. Um, but I always talk about the whisper numbers. The whisper numbers were supposed to be somewhere between 1.2, and I heard a number as high as 2 million new jobs. So the wow. markets would not have been shocked if it was 1, 1.2, 1.1, 2 million jobs when we got only a quarter of a million plus or minus that was definitely a huge miss, and you're absolutely correct. The NASDAQ saw that as the Fed had the luxury to keep interest mm -hmm. rates longer. The economy was going to take longer to recover, which all of that might be true. Still, we don't know. But um, further analysis was not that the jobs weren't there, which is traditionally what happens in a recession. It's that there weren't people to fill the jobs, help wind the signs all over the country. Right. And on, on my way to work yesterday, I, I heard an interview on CNBC with the head of the Chicago Fed. And um, he said, look, a million was a big number, right? He said, you know, 225,000 is not terrible. And, and, you know, we'd like to see a million next month, but we don't know we're going to see a million next month either. So, you know, maybe some of those expectations need to be tamped down as well. And so this is the glass half full of the glass half empty. If it takes longer, the excuse again might be finding labor to open up these stores and restaurants and factories, then maybe the economy recovers at a little bit of a slower pace. Maybe there's a little less inflation in the economy now. Um, but I don't think this solves itself very quickly. Uh, people have to figure out whether that's good news or bad news. But I think until the unemployment number, uh, the uh, unemployment uh, income being generated by the states and the federal government, I think until people feel safe going back to work, 
I think healthcare is a big issue still, whether the, it's a safe environment, childcare is a big issue. There's a lot of unknowns yet, Mike, a lot of unknowns. There are, and, and even as offices reopen, um, uh, quite frankly, a lot of people got used to working from home and, and they don't, they don't wanna go back, but at least they still have, have jobs. I think, I think the bigger issue is really how many, how many companies have job openings now, which is just, just remarkable, um, especially a year ago. I think the number a year ago, there were 20 million people a year ago this month that you know, went on unemployment because of uh, the pandemic, which and is also- Mike, Let's not forget, because we, we've witnessed it in our practice, how many people literally did retire, right? They were either laid off or given an opportunity to take early retirement. So those jobs uh, were, we'll use the word eliminated, now they're back, but those people have retired. They're not in the workforce. So it's not just I'm collecting an unemployment check and don't, I'm not ready to go back. It's that people have retired. They don't wanna go back. Right? They don't wanna go back. And I know we have listeners all over the country and really all over the world, um, I discovered this week, but, um, we have a lot of listeners who live on Long Island who have either live on Long Island now or have, and a lot of people have said, nope, I'm not, going, I'm not going back on the railroad and I'm not going back on the LIE. No, thank you. And Mike, I, I just touched on it for a quick second. Health is a big issue about that, right? And I realize most of us now have gotten a vaccine. The majority of Americans, I think we're over 50%, have gotten at least one uh, vaccination shot. Um, but health is still a big question mark for a lot of people. It, it is, Dom, but the flip side of that is restaurants are packed again, right? So yes, people worry about their health and health is an issue, but restaurants are packed, you know, my, stadiums my are filling up. My flight to Florida was packed and I wasn't too happy about that. Um, so the world is getting back to normal, but perhaps a little slower than some of the experts told us uh, it was going to. Yeah, we've touched about, we've touched on that in the past as well. So listen, the, 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 the next five trading days, I'm sure will bring us some more ups and downs, some more adventures. Um, next week's show, we're, we're, we're actually going to have a tax expert on. Um, tax season is winding down this week. And uh, next week, please tune in because we'll talk about some of the uh, concerns that are hovering over the market as it relates to rising taxes and rising capital gain rates. And that could be a big market mover, right, Mike? We don't know what the new rules of the game are going to be, but depending on some of the rumors out there, it could be significant. Yeah, sure sure can be. And it'll affect both muni um, equity investments and fixed income investments for sure. So on that note, Dominic, stay safe. And um, I will see you next week, my friend. Be well, Mike, and I'll talk to you soon. Have a good night, everybody. Good evening, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to the Labenthal Report. Dominic, Michael, and Jordan will be back for our next program, airing next Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, have a great week.